This is Taiwan Bound, the English language podcast of Tel Aviv University. Please welcome your host, Ido Aroni, Tel Aviv University's graduate, member of the Board of Governors, lecturer, writer, and veteran diplomat. Welcome to Tau Unbound. I'm Ido Aharoni, your host, and today it is my distinct pleasure to host Professor Hani Lerner. Hello. Thank you for joining us. Hani Lerner is the head of the School for Political Science, Government, and International Relations, and her office is in the legendary Naftali building, which I had the pleasure of attending in the early 1980s. Uh, it's good to see you again. Good to be here. You're a longstanding friend, and um, I don't know how you do this, but when I first met you 20 years ago, uh, you still look exactly the same. Why I, I am completely different today, lost my hair, and I'm overall declined, but uh, it's good to see you. You also look the same. <laughs> I know. I was fishing for a compliment. Um, uh, these are um, interesting days today, and your specialty, and uh, as a political scientist, is, of course, the, the history of constitutions, and you are engaged in um, uh, comparative research, comparing one culture from another, political science from another, and uh, it's always fascinating to discuss, and especially now when we have this um, um, constitutional crisis in Israel. But uh, before we, we talk about what's happening today, I'd like to begin the conversation with uh, a little bit about yourself. Tell us about your background, um, and how did you end up uh, becoming an, an expert on constitutions? Well, uh, thank you for the question. I'm a graduate of Tel Aviv University, actually. I started um, studying, I graduated uh, from the um, uh, Faculty of uh, Humanities. I have a um, BA in History and Philosophy, and a Master's degree in Philosophy, Uh, but I became interested in sort of political philosophy and uh, then moved to New York, got my PhD in um, uh, political science started, um, actually from the political theory side of the uh, discipline and then kind of moved towards uh, comparative politics. Uh, my PhD dissertation was on constitution making in deeply divided societies. And, and, uh, uh, and that's when we met. It was right. almost When 20 I years was, uh, ago, and this was during my first overseas, my first posting in New York as a diplomat, and right. you were uh, getting your PhD at Columbia. Right. So which, looked, which yeah. societies did you study in your PhD? So I wanted to uh, compare Israel to similar cases uh, of um, countries that addressed or uh, tried to write their constitution while... Um, Uh, in the context of deep disagreement between different factions in society over uh, identity issues, over central sort of identity uh, questions. Um, I, at, back then, it was in the early 20s, uh, the field of constitution making was very much concentrated on the issues of uh, democracy, institutions, um, And I remember taking a class with two leading professors, leading researchers in the area of uh, constitutions and constitution making. And they, uh, most of their examples focused on either the U.S. or Western Europe. And um, the main sort of idea or concept was that the moment of constitution making is the moment in which the people 
you know, kind of decides over the, the, main, the basic uh, rules of the democratic game. Um, and then I remember I raised my hand and asked, but what happens if the people do not agree, if, some, if, if societies are divided over serious, you know, issues such as religion and state or ethnic or national identity? And these famous professors said, oh, no, constitutions, it's not about identity. We, do, we didn't think about these issues. And then I realized, okay, someone needs to write the book. And that was, um, now, uh, when that, you that say, was the project. So when you say identity, uh, if you can uh, further explain what you mean by that, because I'm not sure all of our listeners um, um, you know, will understand that. So I... Um, some uh, countries are, uh, I mean, it's, it's actually a debatable question within, <clears throat> among researchers, but one could look at the different countries around the world and divide them into two separate groups. One is uh, countries where there's more or less kind of um, uh, what uh, um, researchers called overlapping consensus, more or less sort of basic understanding uh, of uh, uh, about the, the basic uh, values and norms that should underpin state policies. And then there are countries that are divided between different identity groups where it's difficult to move or transfer between these groups. So, for example, countries that are divided between different religious groups, between different ethnic groups, between different say uh, linguistic groups. India, for India, example. India, for example. Exactly. So the cases that I uh, studied were India, Later on, after finishing my uh, initial sort of dissertation project, I moved on to other countries such as Turkey, Indonesia, uh, Sri Lanka. Uh, my initial, the first book compared Israel, um, India, and Ireland. So Ireland uh, wrote their first constitution um, uh, uh, during the in 1922, right after the uh, civil war. So Ireland was also a divided. Uh, country back then, um, yeah. So these are so, the the different, the sort of more, um, much more extreme and sort of bloody conflicts rather than you know right. ideological or political conflicts that we are familiar with in the Western world. Yeah. So for the benefit of our listeners that don't know what's happening today in Israel, but we are in the midst of a fierce battle over the future of the Israeli system. And what the government is referring to a legitimate reform, a structural reform, is being viewed by, I would say, a solid majority of Israelis, including people that voted for this coalition, uh, as an illegitimate attempt to try and change Israel's DNA. And that highlights the fact that Israel has no constitution and Israel has no separation between religion and state. And the question is to you, Professor Lerner, why is that? Why Israel doesn't have a constitution? Why didn't we separate church and state like the Americans did earlier in history? So again, like any you know complicated uh, sort of development or political development, there are many reasons, and historians and political kind of theorists argue over why Israel doesn't have a constitution. The fact is that uh, in 1948, when Israel was founded, the part of the Declaration of Independence included actually a kind of um, a statement about the future uh, constitution. Uh, the first elections for the Israeli legislature was actually, in fact, for a constituent assembly. The first election is 1949, 
was for a constituent assembly, but then on its second meeting, the constituent assembly decided to transform itself into a legislature. It, Israel is not the only country where it happened. India, the same thing happened. The um, legislature, or the parliament, holds both legislative uh, powers to make ordinary laws and a constituent power to make a constitution. In a year and a half later, um, the Knesset decided not to draft a complete constitutional document. Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister, was the main objector to this idea of drafting constitution. Actually, Menachem Begin, the uh, uh, head of the Herut party, was the kind of a fierce uh, supporter of the idea of drafting a constitution, including a comprehensive bill of rights. Why Ben-Gurion uh, objected the idea of the constitution? There are many reasons. Uh, in a famous speech that he gave, in a very long speech that he gave in the Knesset, explaining his position, uh, he said that Israel doesn't need a constitution because the institutions of the state exist. Israel doesn't have the need to draw to um, create this kind of um, contract between fe a federal uh, uh, government and uh, and states as in the U.S. So Israel is different in the sense that there is no institutional need, in his view, for uh, 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 for a written constitution. He also um, didn't want to limit the executive. Uh, he thought that it would be a waste of time to argue about values and about you know uh, uh, principles uh, when their most urgent need at that time was to bring Jewish immigrants into the country, to build the country, and to focus on sort of putting facts on the ground in terms of creating the Jewish uh, uh, state. Uh, he said in a, in a statement, if there are going to be, when, there's gonna, when, when there are two million Jews in Israel, that would be our constitution. Uh, there were also additional arguments during the early debates in the Knesset, those debates in the Knesset. Some argue that it would be a more democratic process if the constitution will be written after the waves of immigrants will arrive into the country. At that time, 1948, uh, most of the sort of future citizens of the country were outside of Israel. So um, uh, the idea was to bring them in and then argue and debate and draft a constitution that, you know, sort of... Uh, Fits or represents the right. uh, norms of the of the. Well, you know, and, uh, I'm sorry. <clears throat> sorry, no. Just one last issue is the debate over the place of religion and what does it mean to have a Jewish state. I think that the leadership at that time did not want to sort of entrench a secular or too secular or too religious sort of um, um, principles into the constitution in order to uh, not prevent the immigration of uh, Jewish sort of diaspora from all over the world. He didn't want to, you know, kind of uh, uh, create some kind of opposition from the secular side or from the religious side. So this, so left things sort of um, open. And also they believed that in the future it would be easier to agree on these kind of liberal principles, secular principles. Excuse so me. so the, <coughs> the idea was to uh, introduce later on a mm -hmm. set of what we call basic laws that one day right. will amount into a constitution right. that was... Uh, so Ben-Gurion was um, um, a rare combination of a strategist and a tactician. 
Uh, and usually, usually he was a brilliant strategist, but I think that here, um, I, I think he misread the, and maybe, you tell me what do you think, maybe the fact that, um, and again, I'm not an expert on the psychology of leadership, but maybe that generation uh, of, um, of Jewish leaders that all came from very orthodox family, yet did not observe uh, Jewish Orthodox religious practice. Although I must say that at least on the socialist part, and maybe also on the revisionist part, but mostly on the socialist part, they were deploying the same religious fervor of Orthodox people, like uh, Ade Godon with the religion of labor. And, uh, and, and Ben-Gurion also had this fervor that is characteristic of very religious people, although his religion was different. Question is, if they had a soft spot in their heart for Jewish orthodoxy, and that's the reason why they did not want to confront them back in the day? I don't know if it was a soft spot or maybe it was a strategic move. Um, there was no question about the Jewish identity of the state, so there was no need to sort of entrench it in a formal document. I think also Ben-Gurion was kind of... Um, um, you know, part of, I mean, his generation of leaders, uh, post-World War II kind of leaders of the new countries that were founded um, in Asia and um, such as Israel or India or in North, Af North Africa, such as Algeria, uh, these countries were founded by leaders who were secular, socialist, and had a vision about the future of their country. They did not imagine uh, the rise of religious sort of politics, you know, in the decades that followed the uh, um, independence in their countries. Back then, in the in the sort of late forties, early fifties, uh, the idea of modernism was the main kind of consensus. Uh, the you know Nehru in India uh, and other leaders uh, in the region were founded their countries on the basis of secular socialist liberal ideas, they did not think that these will be so um, divisive and so conflicted, you know, 50 years later. And that was part of the moment of global optimism following the end of the war and the establishment of the United Nations. And in fact, Israel's proclamation of independence is making reference to the United Nations Charter, which is very unusual. Today, it would never happen, of course. And that maybe that explains the affinity or the connection that Ben-Gurion felt to Turkey's uh, Mustafa Kemal Atatürk. And uh, so what have you learned about Turkey? I'm very fascinated about that case. So Turkey, as opposed to Israel, did not establish a democratic system. Uh, so the main difference between, you know, countries like Israel and India is that uh, the, despite the divisions that are uh, kind of characterize their societies, they did manage to create democratic institutions. In India, um, uh, sorry, in Turkey, the um, political system was never fully democratic. Uh, the first constitution, so Atatürk's revolution uh, and first constitution was written in 1924. Uh, the first sort of 10 years were... Um, characterized by a very, very kind of top-down revolution of sec of very harsh process of secularization. He was influenced actually by the Bol Bolshevik the revolution. 
tried to um, um, uh, promote development uh, and uh, and push forward the sort of economy of the of the country, but not through democratic or liberal means, as opposed to India, for example. Uh, then, uh, only in 1945, Turkey became uh, uh, adopted sort of a multi-party system and had their first elections. Uh, and since then, twice already in the early 60s and in the early 20, uh, 1982, sorry, um, when parties that were perceived by the sort of elite, secular military uh, elite as too religious, uh, those parties were either removed from government and the military took over and drafted a new constitution. So the current constitution was actually drafted in 1982, but under sort of the control of the military. In recent years, Erdogan, uh, in the 90s, there was a hope that in, uh, Turkey will become more democratic, but then uh, in the round, uh, when Erdogan sort of uh, took over. Uh, there was another hope, actually, in around 2007, there was a, a, a very important committee chaired by uh, Osbudun, um, someone I had um, uh, close uh, connections with. Um, they tried to draft, a, so they did draft a constitution, a new constitution, but it was not adopted. And then the nine, in 2016, they sort of attempted coup was the excuse for Erdogan to completely uh, completely sort of changed the, the regime in Turkey and uh, according to sort of comparative measurements Turkey does not is not longer even considered sort of uh, you know a uh, sort of semi-authoritarian it is a complete authoritarian system now so it's not even a crippled democracy no. now let me ask you a question that really bothers a lot of people and that's about the perceived weakness of the Knesset so you said the Knesset had, has two powers one power is to draft laws and pass them, the legislative power, and then the power to draft the constitution. Now, many people claim that the Knesset has never been weaker for all sorts of reasons. Um, what do you think needs to happen in order for the Knesset to exercise, and successfully, its authority to draft the constitution? Uh, well, to begin with, uh, what is needed is a political will of the members of the Knesset. You're right that in terms of the sort of institutional relationship between the Knesset, the Israeli legislature, and the uh, government, the executive, uh, the Israeli parliament is ex especially weak institution compared to the um, government and became even weaker in recent years because of different sort of changes in the, in the, in the regulations. So any... Uh, um, coalition, any, uh, you know, 61 uh, members of the, um, uh, of the Knesset that form a coalition control any decision that is made by the legislature. So there's very little ability for the, for the Israeli Knesset to supervise and oppose. By the way, it, uh, uh, an, in, uh, an interim question, what can be done to change that? Because we know, for example, of the American system, that the country is divided into districts and therefore legislators are indebted to their constituents. And that changes everything. What can be done in Israel to change that, what you just described? Yeah. So um, that's a very big question. Uh, obviously, 
we, I think we do need to uh, think about our political system and maybe either change electoral rules. Uh, going back, by the way, to Ben-Gurion, one other reason that he objected the drafting of the constitution was he, uh, he wanted to change uh, the electoral system in Israel and turn it into regional sort of um, districts. Uh, he thought that the the current the uh, political the electoral system that is based on party system uh, with one district the entire country is one uh, um, electoral district is not a good idea. He very much liked the British system uh, that also doesn't have a written constitution but has uh, kind of a, you know informal kind of collection of uh, um, of uh, constitutional principles. Uh, what needs to be done, it would be an ideal if a constituent assembly would have been elected uh, and rethink, you know, our political system and draft the constitution, whether it's a realistic uh, project, I'm not sure. Let me ask you, how, what are the processes that brought us to this point, socially and politically? Uh, we are facing the worst constitutional crisis in Israel's history, and we don't even have a constitution. So, I mean, it's really crazy what's happening, right? Israel's democracy is being challenged from within. Question is, it's not happened overnight, right? It's a it's a result of a of a long process um, that took place over decades. Uh, what would you say are the main factors that brought us here? Uh, so one main factor is uh, the lack of um, a complete constitution. I think that Israel does have a constitution, it's just not complete. So we do have a series of 13 basic laws that were enacted over the years. The process was just never completed. There are two missing sort of elements. And I think if they were in, put in place, maybe the situation would have been much easier to sort of you know, maneuver. One is the basic law and legislation that is missing and that is being debated in the past several years. The uh, previous government formed a committee uh, chaired by Gidon Sal, and they tried to draft uh, um, uh, the basic law on uh, legislation. This sort of missing link um, uh, um, is supposed to uh, define the balance of power between the legislature and the judiciary, which is exactly kind of the core of the conflict, uh, the current conflict. Uh, there's also no um, agreement or there's no sort of formal decision on what is the proper process for enacting basic laws. So the Harari decision from 1950 that we talked about earlier left sort of this issue, the procedural issue kind of open. The decision of the Knesset in 1950 was that the, the um, Knesset will enact basic laws in a gradual manner over the years, and eventually, at some point in the future, they will all be gathered together into one constitutional document. But there is no decision on what should be the content of the constitution, how basic laws should be drafted, whether with special majority, a regular majority, and uh, what, you be, what should be the... Um, a um, uh, procedure for amending basic clause. So this is a basic kind of institutional problem. I think the other missing element in our incomplete constitution is the lack of uh, the principle of uh, equality. 
Israel is the only democracy in the world that does not have a formal entrenchment of the principle of equality in basic law or in legislation in general. We do have the basic law on uh, human dignity and liberty, which is interpreted by the court as sort of applying a non-discriminatory you know, Now, idea. But the issue of equality is mentioned in the Proclamation of Independence. What is the relationship between the Proclamation of Independence and all the legislative aspects that you study. Yeah. So the, it's, uh, the, the Proclamation of Independence has a very important symbolic role. It defines the values and norms of the state. Um, it, was, it is also often cited in Supreme Court decisions, and it kind of inspires and influences informally uh, legislation and uh, and Supreme Court de- and court decisions, but it does not have a formal obligatory kind of role. So it's not a law. And is it, would it be possible? Are there any historical precedents of countries that um, were able to form or draft a constitution, agree on a constitution after uh, such a rift? in society and politics? It's a question I get uh, I get a lot in recent uh, days. Uh, there are we there are many cases of democratic countries that tried to draft their constitution, that succeeded draft their constitution. Some processes uh, fail because of various reasons. Just recently in Chile, the um, uh, uh, they tried to draft a constitution. They actually created a very interesting process that involved a lot of civil society organizations and kind of independent groups, uh, but eventually the draft failed uh, in the um, in the referendum. And now they've initiated another kind of procedure. Um, there are only three countries in the world that, does not, that do not have a written constitution. Israel is one of them. All of them are democratic countries. Uh, the UK and New Zealand are the other two. Um, so, yeah, countries do write and change and amend their constitution. But in their cases, I'm not familiar with the system in New Zealand, but I'm somewhat familiar with the system in the UK, and I know that there are other checks and balances which we don't have. And you specifically mentioned the weakness of the Israeli Knesset, the legislator, which is a big, a big deficiency in the design of the Israeli political system. And um, I wanted to ask you, in terms of... Um, um, you know, the, many of the people that are listening to us don't really know the, the differences between the Israeli political system and, let's say, the American or the Canadian or the British political, political system. What would you say are the main... For example, a lot of people think that Netanyahu was elected personally, that we elect individuals. Uh, so what would you say to our listeners are the big elements for them to know about the Israeli political system that makes it unique? Um, I think, well, such a comparison, I think, is might be difficult to pinpoint, you know, specific issues because any country is, is somewhat unique in its own way. So, uh, you know, from a comparative sort of... Uh, uh, perspective as a as a political scientist, many argue that the U.S. actually is the unique country uh, is has a very unique uh, political system. 
uh, that sort of emerged because of its own political um, um, background and political sort of uh, consequences. Also, the UK is a very has a very unique history. So I think every country uh, you know, had developed its own unique kind of uh, institutions be, uh, that are kind of embedded in their history and the political concerns and political issues that uh, that um, uh, the founding generation or the political leaders at some crisis moments or uh, some important other kind of uh, critical junctures uh, uh, were concerned with. Um, so I don't know, I sorry, I don't, so it's hard to kind of, you know, uh, I think identify uniqueness because all countries have some shared some shared institutions, but also unique in their own way. There is no copy-paste in constitution-making for that reason. Right, right. But I think that when you look at the Israeli system and you compare it to other uh, Western systems, I think the uh, what makes the Israeli system so, so unique is the fact that we have a, um, um, a party system. It's a parliamentarian coalition. A parliamentarian, um, the coalition is a process between parties and not between individuals. Yet the perception is uh, that the individuals are actually being elected. And that, I think, creates a confusion in the world. People really don't understand the Israeli political system because of it. And I get a lot of questions about that. Yeah, that's part of the sort of pri uh, privatization of politics that I think happened in Israel in recent years. And again, here, Israel, I don't think is totally unique. It's part of the um, kind of a trend, uh, the rise of populist leaders uh, and the idea of sort of personalization of politics um, that uh, was to some extent influenced by the American kind of political culture. Well, we, we Professor Lerner, we're running out of time. I just wanted to ask you one last question. Uh, which I think is is of interest to our audience. Uh, what are the chances that out of this mess, uh, something good will emerge? Uh, maybe an agreement on the contours, contour lines of the Israeli political discourse, maybe even a constitution, maybe even... What are the chances something good will come out of it? I think already something good is coming out of it. I uh, I actually am a little bit optimistic about the kind of you know cautious uh, optimistic. Um, I think as a again as a political scientist as a someone who teaches for the past I'm I'm at Tel Aviv University. I mean I'm teaching here since 2007, so 15 years. For the first time, I feel that there's some kind of a civics at class across the country. Uh, the number of invitations and uh, uh, for lectures that I get, I give lectures in high-tech companies, in schools, in youth movements. Uh, there's um, uh, a great interest in the public, in um, you know, issues that we are dealing with and teaching in our classes. What is democracy? What is the difference between basic laws and ordinary laws? Suddenly, I think there's a much uh, aware, a much growing, I mean, a growing awareness for these political, very important issues. And I think we're going through some kind of transformation uh, and education process of the Israeli public, which um, turns 
uh, passive citizens into active citizens. And I think this is a very healthy and important process for sort of the vitality of democracy in Israel. Wow. So what you're saying is actually pretty dramatic. What you're saying is that we're looking at the ascendance of a new political camp, the pro-democracy camp. And it may not be a party, but certainly a political mindset. Yeah, and I think also so far, so far, no damage has been made. I mean, so far what we are witnessing is a very active and very vital democratic society. I mean, the demonstration, the protest the uh, public awareness for these issues, I think these are very good signs for healthy kind of democratic culture um, and the responsibility that citizens take for the regimes of their country. This is something that I've been teaching all these years. That democracy is something that needs to be protected by the citizens themselves. And it's happening in front of our eyes. And it is happening, yes. Incredible. Well, Professor Lerner, thank you so much. First, for educating us, and second, for inspiring us. Thank you very much. It was a real pleasure. And to our viewers and listeners, until the next episode, goodbye from Tel Aviv. This is Taiwan Bound, the English-language podcast of Tel Aviv University. Please welcome your host, Ido Aroni, Tel Aviv University's graduate, member of the Board of Governors, lecturer, writer, and veteran diplomat.